1: where we explore matters of the Spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Spirit Matters, where we host conversations with a diverse range of uh, wise people on the broad subject of spirituality. Um, If you're tuning in for the first time, uh, please go to mindbodyspirit.fm and uh, follow us. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss anything. And of course, go back and uh enjoy the previous interviews we've done over the course of about a year now and if you're familiar with the previous iteration of spirit matters which i co-hosted with dennis ramundi for six or seven years uh, that archive still exists at spiritmatterstalk.com all of it is free and you'll learn a lot. Uh, Before I introduce today's guest, I wanna offer a little context. We're recording this on January 10th, 2024. As we begin this new year, many of us are uh, very aware that uh, we might be in for a bumpy ride for reasons uh, I don't have to enumerate. There's reasons to be concerned about um, state of democracy in the world and the health of uh, civic and communal life in, in America. And um, many of us are thinking we need a strong spiritual response to the issues in front of us and that uh, people who are uh, serious about their spiritual lives, their inner lives, uh, need to not be divorced from outer concerns at this time. So I decided I wanted to devote some of our podcasts to exploring how uh, that intersection of spiritual life and civic life. Um, And so I reached out to some friends for suggestions of people to interview. And I got some, and today's guest is one of them. Anne Helmke is an ordained minister in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America and serves as the faith liaison for the city of San Antonio, Texas. Prior to that, she was director of spiritual services at Haven for Hope, a program that serves homeless people. She's taught theology, she's led workshops and retreats and co-founded the Interfaith San Antonio Peace Center, and she's co-authored books. All of her work has focused on social justice and civic engagement. And consistent with that mission, she currently works with San Antonio Mayor Ron Nirenberg on Compassionate USA, a campaign designed to promote compassion and community healing, which is how she came to my attention. So, Anne, thank you for being here and welcome.
0: Well,
2: thanks for having me, Phil. I'm very excited about this.
1: Did I get the introduction right?
2: Yeah. I, in fact, I'm going to like go back into the recording and I'm going to type that all out so I can send it to people when they ask for it, sure. because you <laughs> did get it absolutely
1: correct i'm flattered so, i usually you know edit the the bios that people send me for the spoken word um mm-hmm. i always begin by asking people their uh essentially their spiritual origin story how you came to the uh path that you're on and uh, the work that you do So, uh, please give us uh, an overview of your own spiritual history and uh, go back as far as you think you'd like.
2: (laughs) Well, um, that's a very long story. So, I will, I'm uh, going to truncate it if you would. Summarize it, but just to, um, I think, also give context to our conversation and really, you know, our potential. In the world. Because I know that my um, origin story really does begin in terms of growing up in a family of faith. I grew up in a farm. But um, I have no idea. I was young. I know I was riding a tricycle. So that kind of tells you how young I was. But um, I can remember the breeze on the back of my neck and um, recognizing whatever those words might be for somebody who's was probably a four or five years old at the time, but that there was a presence in my life that was bigger than me. And so that uh, breeze was more of a breath behind me. And I, I really do see that as potential in our world, that we do know quite young things that those of us who are older don't necessarily recognize that are there. So I just think there's so much potential there. Um, But then further into that origin story was growing up in a family on a farm next to a village of 300. Mm -hmm. Um, So I grew up small, but I'm now in the seventh largest city in the country, but that growing up model it really informed
1: is the seventh so. largest city in the country.
2: Yeah, uh-huh. San wow. Antonio is the seventh largest city in the country.
1: I have no idea.
2: Yeah. Anyway, I'm and, sorry uh, to
1: interrupt I just wanted to be No, so no, no, no that's correctly. okay.
2: But, you know, I grew up because it was a farming community. It was small and still remains that. Uh but I I had models around me parents, um, and, and all those 300, whatever people, (laughs) but, um, that, you know, you were engaged in everything in a community that small, you know, people took, took turns being the mayor and people, you know, there were just, there are just so many roles that everybody served and my family, you know, did everything from teaching Sunday school to, you know, mopping the floors to chairing the, the church council to, I mean, it, it, it provided me um, a really strong formation in terms of this is how community works. And, um, and then when you get into a larger setting, not to forget that this is how community works. Mm-hmm. It just is larger. So how do you nurture those things? The other kind of uh, other side of the coin that I grew up with in that model is that um, those many decades ago, um, there was a disconnect and within those models that I did not understand and was very incongruent to what I was actually feeling and experiencing. And that meaning, you know, I did grow up Lutheran um and we had a methodist church in town and we had a christian church in town and the larger town next door they actually had catholics there <laughs> right imagine that and uh and that's about the you know the spectrum that i grew up in but the the thing that i would notice in this very loving family and community and when specifically at the dinner table um talking about friends, colleagues, I guess, of my parents, and, and watching them be together with these friends, and how much they enjoyed each other, and how much they worked together. But then there would always be this kind of note uh, of them being Catholic,
0: mm.
2: or Methodist, or, you know, there, it was kind of like, They're great people. They're great friends, but, Mm. (laughs) you know, they're not Lutheran. And I'm like, it didn't make sense to me as a child. And it, it really has informed my life of why is there this gap? And again, I was probably five, six, seven, when I started to recognize, but what is that? And the other kind of major one was that, uh, I think I was about in sixth grade and and my favorite activity and this sense inside of me was to uh, uh, serve communion, the Eucharist Mm. out under the willow tree, my favorite play space. But, um, But I really kind of felt something was wrong with me at the time and didn't tell anybody because I was female. And and there were n- none of us no. serving in those roles. And um, so those kind of situations and injustices, we could call them that, or, or disconnects, they didn't make sense. And again, I, I find a lot of potential because I was young and I could sense those things. Mm. So again, we could be do- working more there, right? in um, shifting our world by recognizing that we can be shifting really early or than we think. And it's not that it's not a thinking thing, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't get that information by thinking. I didn't get that presence behind me by thinking. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. I
2: didn't recognize the disconnect by thinking it was something very internal that I was recognizing at a very young age.
1: That's fascinating. And there's okay. more to the story, but that's enough. <laughs> well, let's we'll draw some of it out because uh, I have some questions. Yeah. And I'm just, I always <laughs> the contrast between your upbringing and my probably had 300 people, you know, uh, on my street. I grew up in in New York. I, you know, there were you know, well, much more than 300 people on my street in apartment buildings. And the level of diversity uh, was extraordinary. Um, Given that, your early years, um, you became a Lutheran minister. Now, please explain to us, because I think when people hear Lutheran, we think very conservative, certain intolerance for diversity and inclusivity. Uh, In fact, I remember uh, when after 9-11, there was a big interfaith gathering uh, in New York City, and uh, it was a Lutheran minister who refused to sit with the others on the stage. So are there kind of uh, branches of Lutheranism and is the uh, Lutheran church that you are ordained in, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America is that one of many uh, branches of Lutherans or is there uh, you know where I'm going, You please explain yeah.
2: well and I think one of the, the... Biggest things I learned in my church history course in seminary is that no matter, you know, like what kind you are, that within the kinds, there's a spectrum, Mm. there's a spectrum in all of us, right. And so within the Lutheran traditions, um, I'm from the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and um, has been ordaining women since
0: 1972.
2: Uh-huh. And um, and I graduate. Uh, this will age me here, but I graduated from high school in '73 in rural America, and uh, didn't still find out for a couple years that the church I was a part of was ordaining women, right? Uh-huh. And so it was a couple years before uh, I kind of moved in the direction towards ordination because. The word hadn't gotten to me yet, but there there are are different strains Um, and the ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church, is is probably the by far the more liberal uh, of them. Um, There's the Wisconsin Synod and um, the uh, Missouri Synod. And uh, history is also really fascinating because what I do remember from church history too that. At the time of its formation, the Wisconsin Synod was the most liberal among the mm-hmm. Lutherans and has now become the most conservative. Mm. It's kind of just really interesting, church history, who we are, and how that has you know progressed or not. Um, but yeah, um, and none of the others ordained women. We're, we're still the only one in the batch, and, um, and that's how many decades later, Right, mm. so um, very much within our our line of that, um, you know, the diversity and reaching for diversity is very significant. I mean, it's part of of this line mm. to be doing that, and it's frankly helped me, nurtured me into doing extremely interfaith and multi-faith work and um which it's life and humans are just interesting and in how we're made we really are a paradox yeah and i think part of the the you know when we talk about spirituality that's really a critical element i think in christian spirituality i know it's in other ones too right but I get that paradox of that disconnect of when I was a child, right? From my parents. And but then the paradox of, of I watched them and how much they loved their friends, right? Yeah, yeah. Truly loved, even at the same moment of disconnect. And and that informed me as much. As the disconnect, right? It took me a while to kind of get yeah, there.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: But um
1: did they you know it's it's that? really what
2: pushed me. Yeah, what pushed me more into interfaith and multi-faith is that recognition of love.
1: Did they oh. struggle with that?
2: Um well, I don't mm, I don't know if struggle was the right word. Um I do know that as I got older. And um, that it was definitely became a part of our relationship, my parents mm-hmm. and uh, and myself, but we had lots of conversations and um, and then to be alive, right, to have those conversations with my parents and mm-hmm. at the same time to actually watch them evolve and grow and in different ways. And my father died when he was 90. And my mother is still with us at 99.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: I, I come from a, a long, you know, line. And um, so, you know, what a gift to me to, to again, have those models in my life for as long as I have and to watch their growth, that I always have that capacity as well. Um, they really were good models, not perfect. And they would be first to tell you, Right. But, um, and, th- and even that was a paradox. In their imperfection, they were definitely perfect parents. That's great. Because I got to see all of it, you know?
1: I'm, I was caught by the image you used of that um, early <clears throat> spiritual experience of presence. And you talked about feeling a breath behind you had that has that ever changed has that feeling of presence in a sense moved from behind you to mm. something more internal
0: um
2: again that's a big question uh, <laughs> yeah um but I th- it's a big question for all of us right and um There have been times when it has felt absent.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And I know, you know, from the story of Mother Teresa, um, which I think surprised a lot of people after, you know, she died, but, you know, that she felt such a significant absence in those last years. Well, she was
1: Catholic.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now you're sounding like my dad. Anyway, um, but... um, but the, the thing is, is, is the memory of that moment and how key that has been, mm-hmm. for example, when it ha- when there has felt a diff- distance. Uh, it's been, you know, a spiritual grounding for me, you know, it's like, but remember when.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. And and it doesn't take much for me in that remembering like it it's happening right now. I, I know I'm not alone. And again, that's something I feel in the center of my being. It's not an intellectual move, but my memory, you know, connects with body memory, spiritual memory. Um, There have been fuller moments of that presence where, uh, and other times too, where it feels like I'm swimming in it, Mm -hmm. you know, in that presence and that it's everywhere Mm -hmm. and in all people. And um And boy, am I grateful for those moments. And, um, and if I become aware in the moment, even better, you know, there's just like such gratitude comes within the awareness, like, Oh my, here I am in this moment. In fact, we're in one of those moments right now, but you know, that, wow, not everybody gets to feel that. And that doesn't make me special, but it, it does inform me and 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 it also gives me purpose it helps to inform how i move and um probably more in gratitude in movement than anything and also with the gratitude that whole kind of sense of ability and even you know the ability to respond or the responsibility of of experiencing that. And then it's not a gift to keep to myself. It's just really as a gift.
1: There's and then know.
2: what do I do with that gift?
1: Thank you for that. Uh, um, yeah. Speaking about what do you do, you, uh, it seems like, um, have devoted your ministry, your mission as a uh, person of faith, to social action and um, civic life. Did you ever, uh, were you ever pastor of a congregation, or is that something you chose not to pursue?
2: Well, um, it was interesting to serve an inner city congregation, Grace Lutheran in San Antonio, uh, for five years. but when I was in seminary, and in fact when when I went to seminary, I wasn't even quite sure what I was what was going to happen with that. Um, again, from some of the models in my life, um, just kind of being faithful to the next step has always been very informative to me. And so when I really felt the movement to be in seminary, I did that. And while I was there, it was kind of frustrating to me how many people I would meet at seminary and they knew what they were going to do, right? And they were so excited, you know, like rural ministry or they're going to do inner city, you know, like they knew. I had no idea. I just knew that I was supposed to be there then, right? And um, I was the only one in my my class when I graduated from seminary that already had a place to go. That was unusual, but I already had my first assignment, you know, and um, but even then the Lutheran church, uh, ELCA has this kind of next hoop after you graduate from seminary and that you have to serve in a traditional setting, at least for the first three years of ministry Uh, So in a congregational setting before you perhaps specialize in some form of ministry. So there was that, but again, you know, I, I grew up in that, you know, I, I mean, in a community that small, I, I knew pretty much everything about what a clergy person did and, you know, rose colored glasses that that's like non-existent, you know, type of thing. But, um, um, so, you know, I I was sometimes frustrating because I didn't know where I was headed. But when I did take that first role, because it was the hoop, I, I remember in my you know conversations with the Holy, it was like, okay, I, I I'm good with three years, uh, and I will be as faithful, and I was, and I will you know do my very best. But I will come knocking in this conversa- conversation when we hit three, <laughs> you know, and, and that's exactly what happened. Mm. Um, and when I got to three and that exact day, you know, I had a, a taco and sat down at my desk and I'm like, OK, so what does this look like? And and things began to shift but i really think too it all began in that again the origin story because in small communities like i said people took turns being mayor i mean you had you we did everything in that community because that's how it worked and um and and how it would keep working if we all not only did our part but were able to do many parts which included you know, civic engagement. And one of the things that was a disconnect when I got into larger settings, cities, is that there were big disconnects, like people would come to church, but it was like a Sunday morning thing. Mm -hmm. And then there was nothing. And that didn't make any sense to me. I'm like, what is happening here? You know, And um, there was in many sermons, not just my own, many sermons, you know, kind of that encouragement and and challenge and invitation into service in the world. I mean, that was not uncommon or isn't uncommon language, but just not seeing it. And I got to tell you, this is another part of my ongoing, uh, you know, I am, we all are you know work in progress but i was preaching one sunday in that five year period that i was in the congregational setting but i uh it was the boat in the boat and walking on the water and that that passage and i tell you the worst time to have your own sermon speak to yourself is is not in the pulpit it's not the, the best moment in time <laughs> but um you know, I was preaching on you know getting out of the boat and trusting that reach, and that that we were created to walk on water, um, to be Jesus. And in fact, you know, he even says we w- said we would do greater things than he ever did, and we could have a whole conversation on that. But I realized in the middle of the sermon, I was encouraging everybody there to get out of the boat. <sighs> And then it hit me that if I weren't willing to be out of the boat, <laughs> then I couldn't even preach about it. And uh, um it was it's it was the last time I was in a pulpit preaching. Oh. Um I still preach a lot, but um I don't do it in the pulpit. I in that moment, I had no idea I was gonna do it, but I got I stopped and I walked out of the pulpit. And I think I've resigned within the next week. Mm. And I wasn't planning on doing any of those things. But I, I just realized that if I were going to encourage and invite, I had to do it myself. And that, you know, it's that whole thing, you know, preach, but use words only if you have to. Mm. And... Um, and that's when things really started to shift. I, I had in that five-year period, there, there's a sidebar that informed me, but I went to uh, a summit at the Church Center in the United Nations. And it was on service uh, around the world, people doing different things. And um, so there were some things that came out of that. And I coordinated a gang summit here in San Antonio. And all of that happened in those five years. So it wasn't like I didn't have some idea of what I could be doing, but I was still doing mostly in the boat stuff as opposed to out in the world service. So um, it was a trajectory change.
1: And here you are, so I want to uh, leap ahead to um, Compassionate USA and your work with the uh, San Antonio uh, mayor's office. Now I know San Antonio is a bigger city than I thought, but I do know that uh, you're near the border and that uh, there's a, a lot of diversity there and, Mm-hmm. The immigrant issue that is so much a part of our national life, you're right, there in the heart of. Uh, so, so tell us about Compassionate USA and how, uh, well, you take, take it any way you like, but I, I do at some point want to hear wh- what your own experience is uh, because of your the geography of where you're at. Uh, in mm-hmm. as well. But tell us about Compassionate USA.
2: Um, well, it's kind of the same story of me getting out of the pulpit. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to put a pin in Compassionate USA, but basically it was Compassionate San Antonio because ah. we have that, but getting out of the boat and sharing what we're doing literally giving it away to the entire country. So that's ah. compassionate USA. So I'm going to start
1: it as compassionate San Antonio. San Antonio. It started mm-hmm. locally.
2: And, but but um so I'm just going to move backwards a little bit. So okay. one I appreciate what you you know the context that you've given. We're a couple hours from the border. Uh, but we're considered an inland port.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, um, and we are close to the border. And we have had, as everyone has, but a huge influx of um, people migrating through here, um, over half a million in the last couple years. But the whole compassion component of our makeup, of who we are has informed things exactly like that, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: you know? So um, at the root of compassion is the golden rule. What we also refer to as the ethic of reciprocity, which is found in all the world religions in Mm -hmm. one form or another, to treat others the way we wish to be treated, and equally not to treat others in ways that we don't want to be treated. So when we have someone migrate here, how would we want to be treated? Because it could be us at any time. How would we want to be treated if we were looking for a new home? Would we want to be welcomed? Yes. Would we want to be disregarded? No. Would we want to be harmed? Absolutely not. You know, we can make the list. And so even in giving that simple example, it describes part of what Compassionate USA is about, but also, and before that, Compassionate San Antonio, but even before that, in, I want to say it was 2008, 2009, and anybody could Google this and it'll come up, but Karen Armstrong, uh, and you might know some of her work, Mm -hmm. um, she writes tomes but really important homes you know of uh information um comparative religion and being about in the world but it was in 2008 2009 that she um presented uh on the original ted and so you could you could google Karen Armstrong ted and her youtube will come up Well worth it. Highly recommend it. But in the original Ted, which is much like uh, other TV shows that you might see where the voice, where the crowd decides, you know, who's the best, that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Well, in the original Ted, the crowd decides whose idea that they hear has the most potential Mm -hmm. for the world. And Karn, who's, you know, not a consultant, or, I mean, there's a, a hundred things she's not. But there is one thing she is, and that is somebody who's a critical thinker when it comes to religion, interaction in the world, um, where we could be, and her presentation was on compassion, and that the one thing that we needed more than anything on, on the planet was compassion. And she won. The crowd chose her. Hmm. And uh, which could be kind of startling if you think of some of the things that have been just said. But, um, and with that 100,000, what she did um, is that she pulled together um, civic, world leaders, religious leaders uh, from around the world and created what is called the Charter for Compassion,
0: mm-hmm.
2: which you could also Google that Charter for Compassion. And uh, the first book she wrote, uh, 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life," came out of it as well. Not a tome, her easiest read, and um, and it's now like in seventy nine different languages. And um, but what came out of it, kind of organically, this this award winning. Creation of what I think is one of the most important documents of our our time, the Charter for Compassion, um, was this growth of compassionate cities. It was not in her plan. But as people began to read the book, study the book, do that with others, which is exactly what happened here in San Antonio, frankly. But it has happened countless places. In fact, there are about 650 now compassionate cities globally. When San Antonio officially became a compassionate city in 2017, there were almost hundred cities. So from 2017 to 2024, there are now 650 globally. So it it is a serious movement, um, generally brought into being on a kind of a community or grassroots level, that's how it happened here. Again, people reading books, people connecting to each other. Um, but the process generally then moves into, you know, connecting with city council an official proclamation or resolution, which is what we did in 2017. Um, but it's all been done through relationships. And um, we were just fortunate here and patient Uh, which is not necessarily one of my virtues, so I will not take any responsibility for the patients. I like to make things move, but um, our current mayor was at that time a city council person running for mayor, and, and our paths had crossed a year or so before his running for mayor, And long story short, while he was running for mayor in 2017, he made the commitment that the first resolution that he would sign as mayor would to officially become a compassionate city. And the first day he was in office, it was the first thing that he signed. And and that was, well, it was 2017. So you know how many years ago. And he's now in his last term. And he has 18 months left. In this term, but in that kind of partnership and commitment, so many things have happened in our city, from programs that have been developed to having someone like me even in this position. A faith liaison did not exist um, before 2017, although I existed before he signed the resolution, which is kind of interesting, but not much longer, a couple months. but. Um, You know, just how we develop programs um, through the city, but community collaborations. That's my day job with the city is to intentionally form collaborations between the faith community, government entity, nonprofits, community groups, businesses, schools, anybody who's willing to work together to meet the most vulnerable of needs in our city. And so that's what I do. I form collaborations and connections um, so we've gotten a much, I think, a very strong um, faith and spiritual community here now. We had strong foundations to work from. But these last, you know, six, now, seven years, there's been a lot of growth. And um, in terms of policy making and and our civic leaders, um, embracing this ethic of reciprocity, As well as our faith community stepping up in recognition of that golden rule, and it's a part of something we all have in common within our our traditions and and engaging the community and and in civic, more civic ways than we had in the past. Mm. So... um, what happened in terms of Compassionate USA? So to bring us up to speed, before you, but, do, um,
1: and yeah, Matt, can you give us uh, some concrete examples of examples. policy programs that evolved out of? Uh, I mean, it's one thing for somebody a city to say, "Yes, we'll be compassionate," you know whatever the name of the city is uh-huh it's another thing well and that it's that
2: it's not just words right yeah. and and in fact the the resolution has been very informing but we also built it from an informed place but so you know like what does it even mean yeah. to be a compassionate city but one first thing it means is that um it's a part of our dna in recognizing we're already compassionate so Neuroscience has also helped with that. Um, So there's tons of research now, neuroscience and others, uh, in terms of the value of compassion and what it does contribute, but that we can also become more compassionate. And neuroscience also informed that, that by sheer repetition and intention, we can strengthen those neural pathways into becoming more compassionate personally, collectively. Um, but it's also done collaboratively, that it's done in community. And so that the resolution is is written in those ways. So when you ask about policies and programs, what has happened? So immigration, we started there, so I'll just say that. There was no there was no like real debate, and we have to remember we're I'm in Texas. Yeah. So whatever that perception is for whoever is watching this, right? Probably a lot of those perceptions are pretty close to the truth, you know. But for San Antonio, it it wasn't a debate. You know, offering hospitality to the stranger is how we would be wanted to be welcomed ourselves. And so when the first major influx happened around 2019, that was how our leadership in the moment responded. And we began welcoming people then in 2019. And we already were. I mean, we're a city like the country is, frankly, but we're a city of of immigration and people migrating through it. We always Mm -hmm. have been. Mm -hmm. It's just the numbers became so more pronounced since 2019. So immigration. Um, part of the all of this, too, as well as recognizing that Maslow's hierarchy really comes into play. But those things at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, safety and security, housing, health, food, you know, those things we focus there. And when we focus there, community starts to form. And then community starts to like nurture and care for those things higher up in that hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So the community starts to heal itself. I mean, we could go in a whole conversation, right, theologically and spiritually about all of that. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to behold. But um, one of our, our job uh, programs, Ready to Work, people can Google that but we have intentionally put a whole lot of money in that direction. So policy, that if we help people develop in terms of work and we also assist in finding job, that that contributes to safety and security within the home. And so we're investing there and and doing, I think, a very remarkable job of doing that. Um, We've done a lot of work and continue to do a lot of work in terms of mental health. Mm. Kind of again, from this Maslow's hierarchy, mental health is not separate from physical health. It's healthcare is holistic and includes spiritual health. And so in this kind of whole mellow of relationship that's been forming around compassion, that holistic nature has become more intuitive to who San Antonio is as a collective, you know? So, you know, mental health post pandemic, but in the pandemic really, you know, started to become more pronounced or people became more aware. The need became larger, but we were already doing that connection prior to the pandemic so during the pandemic and then even more so post-pandemic, uh, a lot of effort has gone into, into that direction as well. Uh, collaboratives that have formed, we've created, now it's considered by the US Department for Health and Human Services as the number one gathering nationally, it's called Pathways to Hope, um, but we were doing that before the pandemic, and we can continue to do it. But we have people from all over the world who attend and, and focus and work out of this model of community working together. In um, the model that we're utilizing, not only for Compassionate San Antonio, but uh, as a compassionate city within, you know, like what I'm doing, but it's being replicated Even across departments within a city structure, which I just take so much delight in. I call it holy humor, you know, like the holy one must be smiling and laughing at times. That the police department in San Antonio, now through their academy, everybody has to go through compassion training. That's got to be a holy joke, right? (laughs) A splendid but sacred, right, thing. I mean, that's an example. Of, and then to be able to have conversations even with the police chief in a different way than I'm guessing other police chiefs. I'm, in fact, there are probably a lot of communities aren't having that conversation with the police chief around this kind of thing, you know. And then when it comes to, I'll use this as another concrete example, but when it comes to Compassionate USA, even in how it formed, was a month, not even a month weeks after the school shooting in Uvalde, which is one of our close neighbors at 70 miles. It might not seem so close to other people, but Texas terms, Texas, it's, yeah. they're our neighbor. And um, the mayor and I were at a the US Conference of Mayors meeting, um, it was in Reno at the time, um, early June, really just days after Uvalde had happened. And those are like all the largest cities in the country who come together several times a year. The mayors come together and, and work together. And everybody there was talking about Uvalde. And I think part of the reason that they were talking about it was because it was such a rural area. You know, it's like, well, yeah, you know, mass shootings, school shootings, big city, you know, but no, this wasn't big city. Uvalde was not. It's rural. And maybe that I resonated with that or something, but, you know, the atrocities can happen anywhere, mm-hmm. just as much as the joy and the healing can happen anywhere. Mm-hmm. But walking in the hallways from different conversations, the mayor and I were talking about what we were doing in terms of being a compassionate city and what would happen if other cities even though there are 650 globally but what if that would happen just with in more cities in the united states in terms of school shootings was there some was there a way that we could give that away was there a way that we could share and replicate that right and and that's what compassionate usa came out of and and yes was the answer and so um, even before we returned, there were conversations happening from Reno back to San Antonio. Could we develop a training, an education that could be online and free and available to everybody in the United States? Well, you also know that once something goes online, it's free and available to the whole planet. And um But that's what we did. We worked with a a local community college, and they did the curriculum development. And people can go there from this, www.compassionateusa.org. You'll find free training there. Actually, there's several free trainings, but one is a video series. You could use those videos for like adult forum. They're, you know, seven minutes long, maybe. And to have just to let those those thoughts and in movement enter into our being uh, my dream is that you know compassion becomes our children's first language no matter what language they speak but i know i had it and we all do it's a matter of recognizing it, finding it back if we have to, exercising those muscles, mental, spiritual, emotional, and we can do that. There's skill sets to
0: learn. That's but, fine. Um,
1: That's actually, uh, you, you just uh, gave me a segue to uh, one of the important questions I wanted to ask you uh, in the time we have remaining. Um, can co- compassion two questions. What is the relationship between compassion and empathy? And can those qualities be uh, taught? Are there skills? Can they be, can, is it like, are some people just gifted, uh, like the members of the San Antonio Spurs are gifted in, in basketball, but Anybody can, you know.
0: Well, it's
2: interesting you mentioned the Spurs because they're also in that resolution itself. We Uh, like to think and claim that they are the compassionate NBA team. That's what's so weird and different about them because they're practicing compassion. Not all the time, but
1: they need to practice winning more, but they did very well. Right. Well,
2: okay. (laughs) That's this year, right? But, um, that it's interesting because it's also one of the ways we talk about it. I'm told. Yes, there are skills. Absolutely. And so when you go to compassionate USA and you go to the training, that is skill training. But we utilize we utilize a lot of different things, but a basketball team. So a basketball team, right? The Spurs, they practice, practice, practice. Any, any team really does. Any good, te- you know, practice, 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 practice. We also know the term spiritual practices, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's practicing practices because we know from neurogenesis, it's by practicing, replicating that we strengthen our neural pathways. So we practice so that when they're in the game, when they're in the moment. What they've been practicing steps up and, and they sh- that shoots the basket, right? Not what they decide in the moment. Their, their right. whole body shoots and moves. So yes, the skill sets, um, it's part of our DNA. So we all got it. But they can be learned, nurtured, strengthened. And you can do that individually. I can tell you honestly that i am not the same person i was 10 years ago because of these understandings of practicing and being intentional you know i've like intentionally set my values that i know are important to me but into my practices so that these things can step up at any given time so yes that's exactly why we um did that educational component and our mayor by the way is um is a bodybuilder, weightlifter. Totally. Yeah. So when I started to use language with him about, you know, like training your body, exercising your muscles. Well, that's exactly what we Mm. do in Compassion Education. It's an exercising of other muscles and making them stronger. He totally got it right. Now, what was your first question of these two? Because I had an answer for that, too.
1: The relationship between compassion and empathy. And empathy.
2: Because this is a really nice spot to end. Okay. Because there is a difference. Now, people have lots of different definitions, perceptions from their own contexts, But these are the working ones that seem to make the most sense. Empathy and compassion, they need each other. In fact, compassion compassion definitely needs empathy um and but they have the same root right pathos passion empathy and mm-hmm. passion you know it's we could call compathy you know it's the same root but walking with another in their suffering right and probably many of us have heard that when it comes to these conversations the, to walk with somebody in their suffering, right? Now, the 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 slight difference between the two of empathy and compassion is that empathy is is that thing, Phil, that when I see you hurting, and and I'm walking with your suffering and I know we all know what this is, and I can feel it. Like there's this body thing too that happens, you know, like I can even get anxious about it. Um, I can feel sad with you. I can grieve with you. I have these things that are happening with you. I'm walking with you, but I have these things. And in fact, back to neuroscience, they've even measured that empathy. It's an energy flow that our bodies, it takes energy. Mm. So that whole thing about like compassion fatigue is a misnomer within Mm. these definitions because the fatigue comes from the empathy because it takes energy
0: Mm.
2: from us there's it literally, there's a thing that happens in our body. Right. So um, compassion is the antidote. Compassion also walking with somebody's suffering, but it feels a sense of agency, but I could do something, you know, we, we could do something, Mm -hmm. you know, Phil, I know you're hurting, but you know, like, would it help, Phil, if we met once a week for lunch while you're grieving? And I might even find one, and I can feel it even right now in my fingers. And I'm not even, you know, like we're pretending, sort of, but I can feel my fingers kind of tingling. When you get an idea of action, it actually produces, our bodies are made this way, it produces new energy. Mm. It might even give you Phil a sense of hope. Oh, Anne, I, I would love that if we would so we. In fact, you might even feel feel a sense of of hope, uh, 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 uh even like a, a little spark of there might uh, something might happen, right? To heal me, to make me more whole again in where I'm really hurting. So, um, and, and when you get more and more in tune with it and more and more practice, you can literally feel these things in your body and you can, you, you know, where you are and you know, that the, the more you feel drained, the more you're either empathizing or you're working too hard. Those are all other things, right? You're overwhelmed. There's this energy drain. You're like, I, I, what agency do I have in this moment? How can I change this equation? And if I start to answer that, one creativity starts to enter in. Um, and, you know, that's what creation is all about. You know, creating something out of the mess of it all, right? Out of the pain of it all. But you can become very aware of what do I need? Don't always have the answer. It's not. It's not a thinking game. But your mind can help, but your body usually knows long before your head ever does, and that is a spiritual move.
1: Great, you're right, and uh, That was a very good way to end. I will yep. make that unless you have a final word for our audience.
2: No, but I'd I'd love to keep having this conversation with you and anybody else.
1: Well, I just get you, as you you just can just tell, I get you, so
2: energized by sharing me and telling. You uh,
1: lunch every week.
2: Why don't we do that, Phil?
1: Because we're two thousand miles away.
2: Okay. Yeah, but I can <laughs> sit here with you virtually, have a cup of coffee with you,
1: it's have lunch with you. It's a deal. It's Any of us can pleasure. do that. I've been
2: having communion with my ninety-nine-year-old mother since the begin. Every Sunday, since the beginning of uh, COVID, the Is pandemic. She still
1: in the small town. Uh,
2: actually, she's in the larger town just next door, okay. Lincoln, Illinois. So ah, um, well
1: bless her. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for being us, And and uh, listeners, um, you can learn more about uh, what we've been talking about at Compassion. usa.com mm-hmm. is it or dot org? org And
2: that A-T-E. So Compassion USA isn't the same thing. Ah, it's a good thing, it's not the same thing. And people will get confused. They're like, well, this doesn't sound like anything she talked about because ah, it's not.
0: Okay.
1: So
2: it's Compassionate, A-T-E, USA.org.
1: Okay. And you can find the Charter for Compassion online. And uh, well, all this will be posted at uh, the website when this interview is posted. Uh, And thank you again, listeners. Uh, I really appreciate your being with us. I want to encourage you to uh, subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends about it. Uh, Go to my website, philipgoldberg.com. Email me with uh, suggestions. If you have other topics or we should cover on the podcast or other people we should have conversations with, please let me know. Meantime, uh, maintain your own spiritual presence within you and um, take to heart Anne's message and uh, bring it out into the world and do some good. And, uh, we'll see you next time.